and welcome to Academy of Blues, your one-stop shop for all blues clues, views, reviews, and previews. listener, the transfer window is slammed shut. Although, for Chelsea, it felt more like a gentle close than a slam shut. We beat Crystal Palace 4-0, and here to talk about that fresh from his wheelings and dealings in the transfer deadline day is Daniel Gonzalez. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I was trying to get Bakayoko off our books. You know, it's about that's going all right. It's not bad. Uh, I was trying to get Zappacosta back in. I think we need a new right back, so I think Zappacosta should come in. Has to be second choice, Reese James third choice. I'm still remember. Do you remember Zappacosta's goal in his like very first game, I think it was? When he I has that cross. Athlete. Yeah, when he has that cross that just curls right into the top off the crossbar. Yeah, it's like Zappacosta can't cross. He's he's as good as Aaron Wambasaka when it comes to his crossing, but somehow it just in. By the way, that reminded me. Uh, I have this notebook. This is great audio content, but I have this notebook right here that everyone tells me looks like a Blue's Clues notebook. That's and so pretty. I was looking through it and I found that, speaking of transfers, I had my list in here of notes when the transfer window was just getting opened up uh, before we had anything else. I had my list of like transfers that I would want to see if like a completely successful window for Chelsea. And it was, I think, Werner and Havertz and uh, Zayesh was already, Hakim, they were already on the board. They were already like being looked at, but I also had a, a left back, a center back and a goalkeeper in that order. And that's exactly what happened. I think the best friends window we've had since we brought in Diego Costa and Seth Fabregas in the same summer. And obviously that um, ended up really changing how our team looked. So before we talk about transfers, more transfers, specifically transfers going out of Chelsea, we're going to talk about Chelsea for Palace Mill. listeners before we go any further we want to remind you to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast if you haven't yet so that as we go through this season supporting the mighty blues of london you are able to follow along and not miss a single episode that we upload you can also reach us by emailing us using academyofblues at gmail.com where you can send in questions comments concerns uh, any disagreements that you might have with us or anything that you want us to discuss on the show we're also on instagram our handle is at academy of blues Daniel, this game felt so much bigger than it should have been going into it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that games before an international break sort of had the same feeling as like a game right before halftime where you want to kind of end up strong so that when you come back, you're still like kind of writing that feeling of, of going strong at the end. And before this Crystal Palace game, our record was a draw slash loss to Tottenham in the Carabao Cup, a 3-3 draw with West Brom. I'm discounting the 6-0 against Barnsley. Uh, but then after uh, before that was the 2-0 against Liverpool. So we weren't exactly on a hot streak. We were kind of up and down and up and down. And to end it with like an emph- emphatic 4-0, no, no hesitation about it, no like, oh, this could have gone wrong or something, just a 4-0 solid win was just a great way to end up so that the players have confidence going into the break and then coming back from it. Yeah, I felt like there was a little bit of like this unsettling feeling that was going on between, at least w- w- with fans on different social media platforms. That's like 
the easiest way to kind of gauge um, how everybody's feeling about it. But then again, also, it's not a way that it's not something that we should really trust because social media is just so weird and random and toxic at times. But even for me, I remember thinking on Friday, I'm like, oh, we do have to win this game because if for whatever reason, this ends up being another like West Brom or this ends up being another Spurs where we do go uh, score the go ahead goal and then we are not able to kill the game off and, and, and they come back into it, then it's just going to leave this like terrible feeling going into the international break and the team doesn't have a chance to redeem themselves for almost two weeks. So yeah, it, it, though it was a London Derby, it felt like a much bigger game than it needed to be. And I think that's just because of the past few weeks and how weird they've been. But what a weird weekend of football it was in the Premier League um, in general. And I, it's crazy to think about Chelsea winning 4 nothing against Crystal Palace is probably the least talked about thing that's happened all weekend long, um, uh, which I'm, I'm fine with because that just means we didn't have any surprise results, didn't go rogue on anything that other teams did. I mean, if you think about it, this would have been the greatest weekend to collapse because it would have been completely overshadowed by every other team collapsing. I mean, I know this is a Chelsea podcast, but I feel like we have to briefly mention that Liverpool and Manchester United are in it together. They're in it to win it, I guess. Or something. I don't know what their goals are at the moment, but it's at least Liverpool's goal difference is zero. And I'm very happy about that. Yeah. Liverpool conceded seven goals in one game. That's as many goals as Chelsea has conceded all season long so far in four games. Manchester United have conceded 12 goals in three games. That's absolutely terrible. And I think the highlight of watching that Man United and Tottenham game for me, as, as much as it hurt because Tottenham were winning, was uh, Harry Maguire tackling his own player by taking down Luke Shaw yeah, for the first goal that Ndombele scored. I mean, if that doesn't sum up, sum up Man United as a club right now, nothing will. I mean, if you look at the two defenders gone from Leicester, Harry Maguire and Ben Chilwell, I think we might have gotten the better deal in terms of that. <laughs> We got the better deal by about 80 million euros. So, I mean, I haven't seen Ben Chilwell get in any fights in Greece yet. So hopefully that's not on the cards. Just you wait. Just you wait when England and Greece get, get drawn in the same group in Euro 2021. It's going to be an all-out brawl to start off. Uh, not the brawl, but the goals conceded that you were talking about reminded me. It's absolutely insane. Like it puts even more into perspective how insane Chelsea's 2004-2005 season was when they only conceded 15 goals over an entire season. And to look at all the goals conceded by every other top team, quote unquote, this season is, it just puts it more and more into perspective how much of an achievement that was. So true. I could have said it better myself. Now, let's talk about the Chelsea game. The first half was kind of dry and dreary because Crystal Palace did what Crystal Palace do best. They really had those two blocks of four and they sat in and, and just tried to take any opportunity that we were going to create or they just made it really difficult for us to create chances in the first half. This should also be mentioned that this game was the first game that you and I got to watch together um, in the same room or the same house. So that was cool. But I remember both of us sitting back there uh, and watching the first half and thinking that this is this has all the makings of one of those games that that could frustrate us and leave us broken hearted, um, especially with what we experienced last season. Yeah, I think that uh, in general, when we watch games and, and for this game as well, I'm a little bit more positive. I'm always kind of like, yeah, there's got to be a goal in there somewhere. But it, it did have a little bit of that feeling of a. You know, Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea defender makes a dumb mistake at the back, which lets them in. Zaha scores some some goal where she celebrates like it's the World Cup final. But in this case, it was actually a Crystal Palace defender, Sako, who uh, who lets in a who makes a pretty bad mistake and lets us into the game, which is a welcome change for once. Yeah, we've been waiting for so long for other defenders to sort of act like our own defenders and just give us and gift us goals. And it was Ben Chilwell who was the beneficiary of that little mistake from Sako. Um, I gotta say, Ben Chilwell probably had the perfect debut when you think about it. Clean sheet, check. 
go, check, assist, check. I believe you played the entire game, 90 minutes, check. Um, what else could you ask for from a left back on his debut? Not much else. I mean, maybe a goal line clearance, but even if we had to get to that point, that means there wasn't a good job being done to begin with. So the fact that he had this great game and there wasn't any massive defensive saves that had to happen at the last second or anything like that just speaks even more to how good Chilwell and the entire back four along the line did in this game, which is something we've been desperately needing for a few seasons now at this point. Absolutely. I think that in this game, we got to see a little bit of the leadership qualities of Thiago Silva because there were maybe two or three times when Palace were on the breakaway, but he was just able to read it. It was a few steps ahead of the passes that they were going to make, and he was in the perfect place at the perfect time to intercept them. And so then you add to that, you know, say what you like about Dave Aspilicueta, but defensively, he's extremely solid. Zuma looks like he is our best defender uh, in the club right now. Yeah. Even with Thiago Silva there, he might be the most comfortable, the, the, uh, the most settled defender that we have. And then Ben Chowell having a game as good as he did. And the crazy thing about it from the Crystal Palace perspective is, uh, even if they got the, through that back line, there would be someone other than Kepa Arita Balaga back there. So I'm sure that that was just a very confidence-shattering thing to witness for Crystal Palace, especially as the game kept dragging uh, on and on. So second half started, it was only within four minutes of the second half starting that Chilwell got the uh, first goal. And from there, Chelsea really never looked back. Um, we ended up winning four nothing, Granted, we had two penalties, but it, it was for two challenges that should have been penalties. I did want to ask you this. I wanted to ask you what your take and what your thoughts were on that little penalty incident that we got when um, seemingly our entire Chelsea team wanted to take the same spot game. Yeah, I, uh, that was, I don't think it was too big of a deal. I feel like, okay, to explain to anybody who maybe doesn't remember or watched the game a long time ago, uh, the after after Havertz wins the, the, uh, the penalty kick for our fourth eventual fourth goal uh, at first Timo and Abraham walk up to the ball and Timo doesn't look like he's like really trying to claim it but he walks up to Abraham kind of brushes him off and starts to like set the ball down get ready to and get ready to take the penalty it seems without like talking to anybody about it like he just kind of like took it upon himself I would have understood if he tried to do that for the first penalty because he does win that one but he tries to take this one which he didn't even win in this game at which point Aspie has to come over take the ball from him brush Abraham off and give it to Jorginho, who seems is our sole dedicated penalty taker when he's on the pitch. Which does make sense to me. You want one player to be taking your penalties. If Jorginho decided to give the penalty away and kind of let, let Abraham or Werner take it, that would make sense to me. I think it was a little bit childish from Abraham to kind of like sulk so much, and it seemed like he was sulking even after the penalty was taken. Even when he does go to congratulate uh, Jorginho, doesn't look like he's too happy about it. But at least in my experience, that's kind of the attitude of a striker in general, is... Yeah, you're happy when your team wins and you're happy when there's goals scored. But if the striker's not scoring the goal, they're going to get mad about it either way. Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm, I decided to look at it in a, in, in a positive light. And I just thought about as many dynamics as I could. So first, I love that Aspie just stepped in there and said, no, we need to be ruthless. Like, teams need to fear us. So we need to score this. And the best penalty taker in this club is Jorginho. So therefore... He's going to take it. So I appreciated that element of it. And then I appreciated the element that both our strikers went up to just like, okay, the team's winning. We need to get on the score sheet. Timo Werner did that. Tammy Abraham did that. That was great to see. And then specifically with Tammy Abraham, when you think about him and the position that he's in, he does need as many goals as he possibly can get because I feel like he's completely overlooked because of all the other strikers that England have and all the other strikers that are there at the Premier League. When you think of Sergio Aguero and Jamie Vardy and you think of Aubameyang and, and Mohamed Salah, all these strikers that are uh, that are going for the golden boot, all of them are designated penalty takers for their teams. 
and Sarah Kane and Harry Kane. With Tammy Abraham, he's not. He knows he's not the designated penalty taker in his team. So if there was ever an opportunity for him to score a penalty, this was it. Um, and, and as he does that, it boosts his confidence, it boosts his goal tally, and it also increases his chances of getting into that England team. And obviously right now he's behind Harry Kane. So I don't fault him all that much because I totally get it. Um, back in 2010, on the final day of the season, Chelsea needed a win against Wigan Athletic in order to seal the title. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the game was already 2-0, if I'm not mistaken. It was 2-0 or it was 1-0, but we were already winning at that point. And Chelsea win a penalty. Frank Lampard steps up to take it, or he grabs the ball. And Didier Drogba asks uh, to take it. And Lampard says no. And Drogba is visibly upset. Um, and again, there you see Didier Drogba, who's trying to win the Golden Boot on that day, who does end up winning the Golden Boot on that day with a hat-trick. You have Didier Drogba, who's wanting to score it. And then Lampard saying, no, we need to make sure that this goes in. And I've obviously been chosen as the designated taker, so I'm going to take it. And so it kind of reminded me of that very same incident back in 2010. And... What ends up happening in that game is Chelsea end up scoring eight. Um, and I think the fifth or sixth goal that they do score is another penalty. And that time, Frank Lampard says to Didier Drogba, go ahead and have it. And Didier takes it and scores it. So it reminded me of that. So I quite enjoyed it. And I'm curious to see what happens the next time we get two penalties in a game, which should be real soon with, with how this happen league like next game. Yeah, it, 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 should, it should happen real soon. Um, the other thing that I was really curious about was this season we've had Reese James starting at right back instead of Aspiliqueta. Aspi has been on the bench. So if Aspi was on the bench and Jorginho, who's our vice captain, was on the field, would he have gone up to them and said, no, I'm taking this one. I'm the captain on the field. I'm taking this one. I'm just from judging from like the outside of looking at how Jorginho has been uh, leading and, and all that stuff. I would say that he wouldn't have done that. He would have maybe chosen one of the two of them, but I can definitely see him being like, okay, I'm not going to take this one and backing off. So I don't know. All of that stuff was just really interesting to me to see how the dynamic between the team works. Um, so, so it's going to be, it's going to be fun to see who takes the second one the next time we get two. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people freak out a lot whenever like teams seem to get into fights or yell at each other on the pitch. And unless they're coming to like physical blows, it's never like, that bad. I mean, these are like professionals at like the highest possible level they could be at. Like you have to be incredibly competitive to get to that point. And so each of these guys is this hyper competitive, you know, probably a sore loser because you have to be at this stage to, to get where they are. So they're all they're all trying to take penalties. They're all trying to do their absolute best for themselves as well as the club. So I mean they're gonna have these bust ups every now and again. And they're probably gonna make up for it. Like they're probably not even thinking about it the next day. So it's not too big of a deal. It was interesting to see. I, I will say that as well. Which reminds me, uh, do you know who the, the top scorer is for Chelsea in the Premier League right now for this season? Oh, it would have to be Kurt Zuma, wouldn't it? <laughs> it is not. Kurt Zuma is our second top scorer. Our top scorer is Jorginho with three oh, goals. Goodness. Where, Which yeah. is why I'm putting forward my argument that penalty goals should be taken out of the Golden Boot competition because it is ridiculous that they are included, at least in my opinion. 100% agree. Especially with how nowadays they're giving penalties for everything. 100%. Let me ask you. Do you think with this game, with the scant evidence we have, is Silva and Zuma, are Silva and Zuma, are they our center back pairing for this season? It's early think, to make predictions like that. <laughs> I think they should be uh, for so many different reasons. With yeah. Silva, he is our most experienced center back and he is a proven champion. He is just one of the best at what he does in the world, even despite his age. A huge problem that he has is the language problem. He doesn't speak English as well as the rest of the squad. So what do you do? You put another person who can, who can defend and who does speak French right next to him. And that works out perfectly. And then, so think about this. Think about this Chelsea lineup. Um, Edouard Mendy in goal speaks French. 
Cesar Espilicueta speaks French because of his time at Marseille. He's fluent in French. You have Zuma and Thiago Silva, both speak fluent French. Right in front of them is N'Golo Kante, speaks French. I mean, if Wolves are the Portuguese national team, we could, we could, take, we could take on friends. And you have Uli Giroud up there somewhere. You have, um, you have um, Hakim Zayed, um up there too, who also speaks French. So uh, really, I took your question and just made it all about the language <laughs> but really, I, I think that that has to be our center back pairing because they're both the most solid ones. And also beyond the idea of having somebody that speaks French next to Thiago Silva, you also need somebody that is actually very athletic and fast. And Zuma does offer those things for uh, for Thiago Silva so that he can cover for him at times when, when needed to. Just the fact that Zuma's back and playing at the highest level again makes me so happy because how long ago was that injury he had? That was what, five years ago at this point? Yeah, I think it was four or five years ago, and it seems like he's, he was still recovering from it up until now. Yeah, but now he's looking like a solid defender on track to be the best one at Chelsea, maybe one of the best ones in the Premier League in the near future, hopefully. And that would be a good thing to see, especially after everything that he's been through, all the loans he's had to go through, the long recovery period. And I'm just happy to see Happy Zuma back into the squad as a full-time member. Well played. Well played. Speaking of members of this Chelsea team, there have been a few uh, of our players that have been transferred out of the club, at least on loan for the foreseeable future. So you have Ross Barkley, who's gone out to Aston Villa for a season. You have Timo Bakayoko, who is now at Napoli for the next season. And you have a Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who will be spending this next season down the road at Fulham. Out of these three guys, what do you think is the best transfer out for the club and for the player? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say that, wow, that is tough. That is really tough. They're all kind of like on a similar level to me, just because not they each have varying degrees of value to the club. I'd say in terms of like Bakayoko, definitely gone. I don't think the club wants, no, Frank Lampard doesn't want him. The club doesn't want him. And he's a, he's a professional. He's going out. He's trying to find other clubs to, to make it work. And I think he's still got a good player in him, but his spell at Chelsea, similar to Murata and Kepa, was just not started off on the wrong foot and kept staying there. And he's never going to be a starter at Chelsea or he's never going to become this great player at Chelsea. So for Bakayoko, I mean, Italy is probably a really good league for him, somewhere a little bit slower, similar to, to Ligun, where he made his big time appearances with Monaco at the time, so long ago. Uh, and then there's Ross Barkley, who seems like he's kind of like iffy on whether Chelsea still want him. Frank Lampard seems to like him, sort of, but it seems like he's never going to grow out of making dumb decisions. And even though he had that really good game against Liverpool, in his, in his time there, there's still some bad decision makings even in that 7-2 uh, game. So it seems like that's not something that's going to leave him anytime soon. And if he continues playing like that, I don't think he has much of a future at Chelsea. And then there's Loftus-Cheek, who is, you know, there's a great player there somewhere underneath all the injuries, but he's really just has to have consistent playing time without getting injured. And if you could find that at Fulham, uh, which is very likely because it seems like they need a player like him right there right now, if you could find that form, uh, continue playing game after game after game and manage to not get injured for this entire season, maybe there's a place for him at Chelsea, but I can't. It's it's a long road back to being in that starting 11, I think, for him. So that was just a long rambling answer that didn't answer any of your questions, but it's kind of my immediate thoughts on it. What do you think? Thanks for not answering my question. I'm asking you right back. <laughs> I think that um, 
The best one, I would say, is Ross Barkley for the player and club. I would say for the club because Ross Barkley is going to come back from that Aston Villa loan with his value. His value is just going to go up. I think we paid like 18 mil or something for him when we got him from Everton. And I'm very positive that after the season-long loan, Aston Villa are going to want him to go back and they're going to be willing to pay upwards of 30 million for him. And also for him personally, you know, as long as he's fit, he's going to be playing in that Villa team every single weekend, every single time they have a Premier League game. That is his best chance to be able to get into that England national team come Euro 2021. I think on that level, I would say Ross Barkley probably got the best deal. However, I also think that all three of these players will be able to just walk straight into the starting 11 of all the three um, teams that, that they've gone to. With Bakayoko, I would have had my hesitations if Napoli hadn't sold Alan to Everton, but he's essentially going there to occupy the position that is vacant from the sale of Alan. So I'm excited to see about what those guys do. Um, but in truth, I'm actually most excited about Ruben Loftus-Cheek because um, I do think that he'll be playing regularly. And when he is playing regularly and he's fit, he is a very enjoyable player to watch, and he's fantastic. So I hope that he is able to regain some of the confidence and the form that he had pre-injury about 18 months ago. With Russ Barkley, though, what will be fun about watching Russ Barkley play in that Villa team is uh, now Villa have uh, this incredible lineup because I don't know much about their, their back four, but they did get a new right back, Matty Cash. Then they have D Douglas Louise as their center-holding mid, and so the two players next to him, if they're playing a 4-3-3, are going to be John McGinn and Ross Barkley, two players that love to attack, two players that love to carry the ball and run in between the lines. And then they have Ollie Watkins, who is one of the uh, most prolific scorers in the championship last season, uh, playing in front of them. And on his left is Mr. Fowles himself, Jack Grealish, the most foul player in the Premier League since Eden Hazard left. So, and, and that's such a dumb stat or a dumb thing to throw at people, but it just shows that he loves carrying the ball and moving with it. And he is often on the end, on the receiving end of harsh treatment from other defenders because of how good he is. Man, the fact that they kept on to, they kept Jack Grealish after that whole like saga with United, and the fact that he's still there and it seems like he's there to stay at least for the time being, it seems like it. That's that's an accomplishment by itself because he could go anywhere. In a yeah, and and it seems to me like Villa, they know what they're doing because not only did he stay, but he signed a brand new contract this summer until 2025. Um, meaning it's going to be a lot harder for him to force a move out of the club. So that makes me go, okay, there's something that they're doing in there that he actually believes in. And seeing their start in the Premier League this season, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's impressive so far. I mean, their biggest win of the season so far has come against the champions. So um, it remains to be seen, but I'm excited to see how all that goes. Okay, this, this brought up a question to mind that I'd like to ask you because of all your, your knowledge of the game and the years you've spent watching. I feel like you're more ex experienced than me to answer this question, but... I feel like the pattern, and this is related to Chelsea as well, but I feel like the pattern that's been going on for a few years now is that the top teams have, it's gone from like a top four solid, you know, these teams are going to be in the in the Champions League and fighting for that title to a top six. And it seems like now with teams like Leicester and Everton and apparently Aston Villa now, who are kind of like making cracks in that, it seems like it's expanding more and more with, especially with TV money coming in. Uh, it means that these kind of like sponsorship deals for the clubs while still important, don't carry the same weight as they did before when the, the rich get richer every time. And it seems like the TV deals kind of spread that money out more evenly amongst the entire league. Do you think that within the next maybe 10 years or so, the Premier League is going to just become a lot more diverse in, team, in terms of teams winning the title and being able to get into the Champions League? Or is it going to stay with the same, you know, same top league, top teams as before? That's a, that's, that's a pretty interesting question. A scary one to think about because that might mean that our status as a top club could it 
eventually be endangered. Not because we've gotten worse, but because simply other teams have gotten better, which I think as a neutral is what you want to see, but not necessarily as a fan of a club that is doing well, considering. What I will say is, though, I think that within the next 10 to 15 years, I can see the Premier League coming becoming almost like a league of two halves where the top 10 and the bottom 10 are very clearly defined. Um, and so, I mean, when I started watching the Premier League, it was just the top three. And it was Liverpool, Man United, and Arsenal. And then after Roman came in, it was the top four or the big four. And it was Chelsea added to that list. Eventually, it became the top six with Tottenham and Man City added to that list. And now it's really, it's the top eight because you can't really leave Leicester City and Wolves out of that conversation because though Wolves haven't cracked into the top four, they've been in that conversation. Now, this is their third season in a row that where they're trying to push for Europa League spots and things like that. And so it, it's fast becoming a top eight. And I mean, that's only two more teams that have to do well enough to be able to like push those teams in order for it to be a team, a league of 10 teams that are, you know, elite and 10 teams that are kind of like the best of the rest or however we want to classify that. So I do think that- Yo-yo clubs. Yo-yo clubs. I would say though, it, it, it's two things. One, the big teams that have um, a lot of the sponsorship money and the TV revenue, those teams will always have an advantage because they will simply be able to buy the players that they want to buy that, for example, the team that's in ninth place in the Premier League isn't able to buy. That will always happen. However, when you think about, for example, Leicester City, they did not spend the 80 million that they got for Harry Maguire. They didn't go out and buy another 80 million euros or pounds defender. They got um, they got that guy, Soyuncu, or however you say his name, the one who looks like Lord Farquaad from Shrek. <laughs> They, they got him and, and they got a few others. And it's just been really, really smart business on their end. And I think with how players are being trained and with how players uh, and how managers are using technology to their effect, tactics, and with the level of like stats analysis and all that stuff that's available and ready to use, not just to uh, top managers, but all managers and journalists and even fans to a certain point, to a certain point, with all that that's available, I think like this is the time for smaller clubs to close the gap on the biggest clubs uh, in England and, and, and everywhere else. Oddly enough, we see that to be true more in England than we do in any other league across Europe. When you think about Spain, it's really the top two teams plus Atletico Madrid. They're kind of in there, but not really. Um, when you look at Portugal, it's just FC Porto and Sporting Lisbon. When you look at France, it's just PSG sometimes in Monaco. Then you've got Germany, it's just Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund. Maybe RB Leipzig sometimes. Um, and in Italy, it's been Juve for the past 10 years. I think they've just won their ninth or eighth title in a row. So that w I can guarantee that that will never happen in England. That would never happen in the Premier League. No team is ever going to win eight Premier Leagues in a row. When Sir Alex Ferguson was at his prime and he had the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney and Carlos Tevez and Berbatov, the most that he was able to do was three league titles in a row which is still very impressive. Um, so I would say that the, the the time for small clubs to close the gap on big clubs, it's now. It's, it's We're getting there and getting there fast. And within the next 10 to 15 years, I could definitely see it being almost like a league of two halves where it's the top 10 teams and the bottom 10 teams. I don't know if I'm looking forward to that future or not, but it'll, nice to, it'll be nice to see those. It'll, it'll be nice to see, I guess, teams playing competitive matches. And I feel like a lot of what you see within those other leagues where there is that one or two teams that dominate everything else, that every other team can't play proactively against them because they just have man-for-man man across starting 11 just better quality players in every single position. So you have to 
adjust your tactics to kind of hit them on the break. And it's not quite as prevalent in the Premier League, and I don't think it'll be the more and more competitive teams get in terms of like Leicester coming at them. It's like Leicester's not scared to to go out and win 5-2 against City because they have that quality there. And it's nice to see games like that happen more and more often. It's interesting because um, Dimitar Berbatov, who played for Man United and who won the I'm pretty sure he won the Champions League with Man United. I'm fairly certain in saying that. But he pretty much won everything there was to win with Man United. He was there during the Ronaldo era, during the Wayne Rooney, at his prime era. And in, after he left, he was giving an interview. And in it, he said that by the time that this Man United team stepped onto the pitch, teams were already defeated. Because you bring in Ronaldo, you bring in Berbatov, you bring in Rooney, you bring in Tevez, and you bring in Scholes and Ferdinand and Vidic, teams are defeated because they just look at those players and they're like, there's no way we can we can get through this. And there's actually a stretch of games. To this day, the record for the most clean sheets in a row is held by Man United. And I think they did 11 games in a row without conceding a goal, which is insane. And so I think those kinds of statements were back then, totally true. Will we see teams feeling that way nowadays? They won't. Even when you have Pep Guardiola, even when you have a team that is as expensively assembled as Man City nowadays, they still lose. Five team, and they still have those days, and teams are attacking them. And you said, I don't know whether I'm looking forward to that or not. And I think most of me is because I'm already enjoying the wildness of this season than I was, say, last season. And if it means that the future seasons that we're going to have are just going to be more of what we're getting and ex- more extreme versions of what we're getting, I'm all for it. That's well said. That's really well said. I like your I like your speech throughout all of that. It makes me look. You you convinced me. I'm looking forward to. Uh, Four three matches every weekend. There you go. And quite frankly, if that's the only way we'll get Americans to watch soccer, is <laughs> either every goal counts for seven, or we just have we just score seven every single game. It's one or the other. I have to look at all the big numbers that show yeah, up, and then exactly for all you Americans who are listening and not appreciating these comments, forgive us. <laughs> We're also American, so speak for yourself. It's us too. <laughs> So when we get back from this international break, Chelsea begins a very incredibly busy season of games where we're basically playing every three days between the Premier League and the Champions League. Um, and it all kicks off with a home game against Southampton. Now, Southampton at home didn't end very well for us last season. We ended up losing 2-0. Uh, it was one of those very frustrating games where we did all the attacking and they did all the defending and they did all the scoring and we ended up losing 2 nothing. But I'm confident in saying that this Chelsea team has come a long way since games like those. So I'm confident going into this game. But let me ask you this. Where can Southampton hurt us? What is the biggest threat that they carry against this Chelsea team? I think it really depends on what our back line is. And I'm not saying that we're going to do anything different, but it seems like Frank is still kind of flip-flopping between Reese James as a right back and Espelicueta mm-hmm. as a right back. And for me, what Reese James offers is, you know, great crosses, uh, marauding runs towards uh, towards the opposition box. But the problem is his defensive ability is not quite there with Espelicueta's. And if we have all these great attacking creative players in the team, we don't need Reese James for games like Southampton. As long as I think he sticks with the same back line, we stick with Mendy and goal, which I don't think we'll, I don't think Frank has any reason to change. We're solid enough that there's no obvious weak spots to be had. Maybe with Chilwell bombing forward to kind of like put in putting crosses and contributing to the attack, that left side will be a little bit more exposed. But even then, 
this feels like a completely different backline than we started the season with. And it's as if the biggest danger I can see is if Chelsea have that high line, Southampton sit back, and then they just break and try to hit us on the counter. At which point, if we have Aspilicueta and Silva in that back line, they're not, neither of them are really the fastest players, so to speak. I don't know how well Southampton are at playing like fast on the break. I'm not too well researched on them. It kind of feels like we're at that point in the season where teams are not threatened by relegation. There's not too much to play for because it's still early. And this is the time where we should be putting away clear and comfortable wins. So I'm not super worried about this game, at least two. I'm going to eat those words in like two weeks. Watch. <laughs> Less than two weeks. Um, I think one of the things you mentioned was about how threatening Southampton are on the counterattack. Typically, they're not very threatening. They only really had Nathan Redmond, who can run with the ball and at speed, because beyond that, their two strikers are Shea Adams and Danny Ings. Now, Danny Ings is a classic number nine, and he's a fantastic finisher. So I think he'll be a threat just as a number nine that we have to deal with, but not so much on the counterattack. However, they did just sign Theo Walcott on deadline day on loan from Everton. So that does make me think that if he starts that game, they will be looking to play on the counterattack. The positive thing about this Southampton team is that they've been very up and down this season. They haven't been terrible. They Well, they started off uh, horribly, and then they've kind of gotten their act together, but they're not really good enough. So in some ways, it's hard to predict, but I'm always feeling better about Chelsea going into a game when the other team is kind of in limbo as opposed to a team that's been terrible for a while because anything that's been terrible for a while, we do give them the points. We do give them goals. So I'm kind of feeling um, good about that. With with Rich James and, and Aspi Laquetta, I, I, I would start Aspi for the Southampton game and then in the Sevilla game, which is just three days later in the Champions League, I would put Rich James in that. That would be, that would be nice to see. Oh, yeah, okay, let me ask you this. Uh, it feels like whenever we're playing a team with an ex-Chelsea player, it seems like, it's not true, this is not the real statistic, but it feels like 90% of the time they score. And Southampton has the distinct advantage of having two starters that are ex-Chelsea players. Uh, one of, one of whom being your, your long-favored player, Romeo, still in that team. He's been around for 10 years or so at this point. Yeah, I think, I think he's been around. He's been at, in that team since maybe 2014? 13 or 14? Um, Romeo's made... 194 appearances for Southampton. So we can really say that he's more of a Southampton player than he is a Chelsea player, right? At this point, I'd say so. Okay, so we should be safe. Yeah, okay. Let's go with that. Yeah. I'm sure and... Ryan Bertrand's trying to, still trying to win his place as a Chelsea left back. <laughs> yeah, he's actually been out on loan for the past seven and a half years. Um, but... No, I might not even doubt that for some players. <laughs> uh, I'd like to hear... I'm not going to ask for a lineup prediction because that's too hard to get. I mean, the back four and the, the keeper, I think, is easy. Oh, you want to go for it? Oh, yeah. What's your lineup? Lineups are never too hard for me because I get them wrong all the time. So I'll just say whatever. <laughs> and nothing will be different. 11 Aspilicuetas on the field at once. <laughs> hey, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson said, give me Zinedine Zidane and 10 pieces of wood and I'll win you the Champions League. Uh, <laughs> and so, we have a, yeah, give me Kai Havertz and 11 pieces of metal. Um, as far as our lineup for this one, I'm going to say he's going to go with a 4-2-3-1, Mendy in goal. Dave, right back, Thiago Silva, Kurt Zuma, Ben Chilwell across the back. Then N'Golo Kante, Jorginho as the, um, as the two behind. N'Golo Kante, Jorginho in the uh, holding mid position. And then Kai Havertz in front of them with Christian Pulisic on their left and Callum Hudson-Odoi on their right. Timo Werner up top. I think that Mason Mount and Reese James will probably just be rested, but then they'll start against Sevilla a few days later. That's a good lineup. You like it. Do you think that leads me to something interesting I totally forgot to talk about? But do you think Polisic is going to walk right back into the starting 11 
now that he seems to be fit. Because, you know, there's some players like Hazard, where they're so clearly above every other player in the squad. Well, at least Hazard when he was at Chelsea. But when they're so clearly, you know, one of the best players that as soon as they're ready in their back from injury, they walk straight in without anything else. Do you think Pulisic is at that point yet, where he walks back into the squad? Before I get to Pulisic, let me say that the only thing that Eden Hazard walks into nowadays at Real Madrid is a Burger King. So... (laughs) But with Pulisic, I don't think that... With Pulisic, he's clearly not at Eden Hazard level. However, he is undeniably the best left winger that we have at our club. Timo Werner's played there over the past two games. Wasn't that great. Uh, He looked much better playing uh, as, as, as our frontman. Mason Mount, that is technically out of position for him. Hudson Odoi is better on the right. So I would say if Christian Pulisic is fit, Lampard has to start him. Um, and so because of that, I think he will start him. And that's going to be a perfect game for him because Southampton don't have a lot of the ball. So Chelsea's going to have most of the possession uh, in that game. So it's going to be a game where he's going to be able to move around, look for spaces, pass it, move it, and all that stuff. And also, it would be hard, or it would, for me, I wouldn't throw somebody who's been out injured for a while into a really competitive Champions League game against a top team in Sevilla. So if Pulisic isn't going to start against Sevilla, then does that mean that Mason Mount starts both on that Saturday and on that Tuesday? I don't think that that should happen. Or does Timo Werner play out of um, out of position? Again, it's all about this like balance that Frank Lampard has to find within the club. But I think it goes back to the point that you made in last week's um, episode where you said, we've had all these players that have been playing out of position. Now, this game against Southampton, seemingly, you know, hopefully we don't get any injuries between now and then. But seemingly, this is going to be the game where we will be able to play the most amount of players in their preferred positions. Pulisic, Havertz, Werner, all should play in their preferred positions. And so if I was Frank Lampard, I would take that opportunity. Christian Pulisic already made the match day squad on this past Saturday, and he already had a few minutes. So if he takes the next two minutes to just be as fit as he can be to be able to start, I would definitely throw him into that starting lineup. Listeners, again, thanks for listening today. This has been our show. We are going to be back to review the Southampton game and also review the Sevilla game. Until then, I've been Maddie. I've been Daniel. And you have been listening to Academy of Blues. Academy of Blues.